0: Take your copy of the Word of God. Isn't it great knowing? I know I say that. Maybe I say it too much. I don't think that's possible. But isn't it great knowing we have a copy of the Word of God? I mean, for us. I mean, written to man. God loves us so much that He didn't leave us without a witness. And uh, very thankful for that. Take your Bible. Go to 2 Timothy as we continue through the pastoral epistles. Uh, we will eventually get to Titus, one of these, one of these Sundays. Uh, we will be in chapter 3 this morning. Second Timothy Chapter three. And we'll, we'll read through that here in a moment. But I want to say again, good morning and, and welcome to the morning service here at Homeless Baptist Church. You know, we we know that this building these walls and by the way the lord may open the the, the door for us to purchase this pray uh, we talked to the landlord uh, and he's he's considered it so he could say no but we'll we'll still follow the lord of course and uh but considering selling this in about three years so we're, we're hoping that, uh, that god continues to move on his heart uh to sell it and for a really good price of course and uh whatever that price is i'm sure if god gives us the the go ahead the green light to do that i'm sure he'll he'll provide the way to do that but we want to be wise in those areas And uh, this is the Lord's money. I mean, it's all the Lord's money anyway, uh, but we want to do the right thing there. But I I want to say that we know that church is bigger than this building. It's not even about this building. It's about this. It's about us. The gathering of baptized believers around the apostles doctrine. You know, that's what church is. And and to be honest, I very much look forward to to every time we meet Sunday morning, Sunday evening, uh, Thursdays for the gathering of the saints. There's just something special About the gathering of God's saints. I mean, this is his idea. It's not my idea. It's not not even Paul's idea. It's the Lord's idea. He says, I will build my church. And it's not just, we come together not just for sweet fellowship, and that it is, and not just for edification, and that it is as well, but to be a part of the collective worship of God. That's just amazing. I think right now of the workers uh, worshiping. You know, downstairs with the children. I think of Jeff uh, down there working. I think of the, the nursery. And I don't think we have anybody in the overflow room, but we got some folks back here. I, I appreciate y'all guys, you, you being here. Uh, thank you uh, for those workers. And I may, maybe we don't say that enough here, but you know, we have Jenny and we have Tyler up here leading music. And all that's put together so we can really lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that's the reason that you're here this morning. That is the right reason to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, being educated and edified and encouraged. Those things we we will get here this morning, but that's the byproduct of a right heart of worship. And again, let's let's take our Bibles and look at 2 Timothy. And I want to just go through here and, and, and read a few verses here. The Bible says in verse number one, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 8 says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was, but thou... Timothy, hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Mind you, this is the last epistle of Paul. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for the reading of your word. Help it to sink deep into our hearts and minds into our souls, Lord, that we can uh, allow it to change us for your glory. Lord, we love you. And we thank you again for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here in 2 Timothy 3, the Bible talks about a lot of negative things, does it not? Uh, I mean, if you were just focused on this this passage here, at least the first maybe three-quarters, all the way down to at least maybe verse number nine, eight or nine, we get kind of maybe a little sad, maybe a little frightened. But I want you to I want to look at some things here. And I want to focus right there on that first three words of that of chapter three. The Bible says this, no, also. This, no, also. This will be the, the title of today's sermon. This, no, also. But before we get into the the negative here of, of chapter three, I would like to start this morning with a deduced implication from the text, all of Second Timothy. Prior to or actually at least prior to chapter three, so take your Bible and go back to chapter one of Second Timothy. I want you to look at verse number five remember we 're looking for an implication here and that 's going to be our first point this morning an implication, some givens if you will. look at verse number five of chapter one the Paul writes to him, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. It's interesting that, on a side note, that the faith that's in Timothy is the same faith that was in his mother and grandmother before the cross, before even the birth of Christ. That's interesting to know. So faith in God is... His faith in God. But I want to point out that Paul is referring to Timothy's faith. Look at verse six. He says, "I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God." And if y'all remember, we talked about that, and part of that stirring up is to stir up the gift that's within Timothy. So now he's, he's talking about the faith, then he tells him to stir up that faith. And then if you jump over to chapter 2, he charges Timothy to to be strong in the grace right there in verse number 1. The the grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he charges him to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And on and on and on, we can see a theme about Timothy, about Paul's words to Timothy. And that takeaway is that Timothy has faith. And he is a man of God. The rest of chapter 2 specifically, with, uh, deals specifically with some actions that Timothy as a Christian should take if he expects to be strong and endure for the Lord. My implication this morning is that our first imperative and arguably the most important imperative of today and of all time is to know the Savior. We must know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Again, this is an implication from the text, but I think a very clear one. matter of fact, if you look at chapter 3, look again at verse number 15. In so many words and in a way, 2 Timothy 3.15 states that Timothy was wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Friends, knowing Christ is the greatest knowledge you'll ever have. Knowing Him personally, knowing Him as your Savior... And if you think about that and think about what Christ should mean to us, to all of us, lost unbelievers, believers the same, we can really easily see from the text, from the from the from the sum of the, the entire Bible that it was God's plan from the very beginning that those he created in his image that they would bring him glory. We were created to bring God a glory. And that means all of us, by the way, all of us lost, saved, haters of God or lovers of God. We are all created in the image and likeness of God. And God has a purpose for each and every one of us, every single person from Adam and beyond. We were all created to worship God. Isn't it unique to know that we were patterned after God? Now, we are not God, but we are patterned after him. We are in his image and in his likeness. But as many of us know, if not all of us, unfortunately, the first man chose to rebel. He chose to rebel against God and sin entered our makeup, our DNA and however you want to look at that. And by sin came death. And it's it's something that we hear a lot as Christians. And I think we we lose our interest. We lose the the power of our atrocities towards God, the 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 impact How much we hurt God. Think about that for a moment. The perfect humanity that was created and patterned after God, that's still in His image and likeness, albeit marred, is now born into sin. And like Adam, we choose to sin. Last week, if you remember, we looked at a few passages here in 2 Timothy 2 and some other places, how our sin is compared to Adultery. And every man, every woman, every child of God is guilty of such spiritual adultery. And to give us a clear understanding from the text of what this is, I want you to take your Bible, mark your place there and go all the way to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. Go to chapter 14. Psalms chapter 14. This is the psalm, one of the psalms that begins with, The fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. But then look at verse number 2. Verse number 2 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And then as conclusion is found in the very next verse, verse, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul echoes this in the book of Romans and in many other epistles, but there's none that doeth good. We have it right here in the scripture, the inspired word of God. God looked down on all of humanity, and there's none that doeth good. And because of God's justice and because of God's holiness, he requires the appropriate penalty for those violations caused by man, and all of man is therefore without hope. Because the penalty for a, such an atrocious sin against a holy God is eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Now that's, the, that's the hardest thing about hell. And maybe we don't say that often in this church, and maybe, maybe we should say it more often, but hell is a real place. And it is full of fire and brimstone and torture, eternal. But the greatest, the greatest. Pain that exists in hell is the eternal separation from your Creator, from a God who loves you. Sin and holiness simply cannot exist forever, so there will be a judgment. But in that plan, so we see the picture here. We see God created a perfect man. That man will put all of us in there. God created perfect humanity and humanity sinned and rejected and rebelled against God. And then God, because of he's holy and just, has to condemn man, has to justly judge man according to his own sins. And that's that's the plan. It has to be that way. But there is a, a complication, if you will, a quote unquote complication, a quote unquote problem with all of this. It's a good problem. You see, in all of that, God still loved man. God still loves man. Even with all of our hatred and blasphemy and our disregard and our apathy towards our creator, God still loves us. And as tragic as it, <clears throat> as it is that there was no man that doeth good, no not one, according to Psalm 14.2, God sent His only begotten Son to be that one who would be good. Praise God, He became us. He became flesh. He became man for you and for me. Know the Savior this morning, because Jesus was not just a perfect example to follow. He wasn't just a perfect teacher or preacher or son or even brother. Not only was he the perfect man, he was the perfect sacrifice. Second Corinthians 521 states that for he hath made him to be sent for us. He knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus went to the cross. Okay, You're probably thinking, yes, I know this, but never get over the cross. The light of the world became the sin of the world. That should move us. He who knew no sin paid my sin debt. He willingly gave up his life. He willingly descended into the depths of hell. He willingly was forsaken by the Father and all of that because God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right, Brother Tyler? Christ died for us. Three days later, he conquered death in a grave, which made the angels say, if you remember that in Matthew 28, he is not here for what? He is risen, just as he said. Paul summed up that whole thing in Romans 5.18 by saying the offense of one judgment, by the offense of one judgment, came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And even though it's free, we must come God's way. Jesus says He is the way. And Romans 10.9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead. What's, What's the outcome? Eternal life. We shall be saved. Friends, if you don't know that, if you don't know the Savior this morning, don't wait another minute. If you are here and you're not for sure. And if you are a Christian, by the way, you should be excited that if there is someone here that they could possibly trust Christ this morning. Don't wait another minute. And then for us who are saved, you might say, well, pastor, I've already done all that. I've already called upon the Lord and I have a home in heaven. I have accepted that payment <clears throat> Excuse me for my sins. And if this is you this morning, hallelujah. Praise God. Let's hear it. amen. Are you all happy to be saved this morning? Is God real in your life? Do you serve a risen Savior? Is he real right here? Does he compel you to, to live a life that brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Give him the glory because you have a foundation that can never be unfounded. And it will always stand based on the sure knowledge and its seal based on the knowledge and promises of God. But as we've been going through 2 Timothy here, we've learned that foundations are not just there just to be a foundation, although it is. They're made to be built upon. Our lives are to be built upon the foundation of God. And in our text this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives us some things to build upon. Some warnings, some imperatives. He gives us truly some things we ought to know. This know also. And if we can rightly deduce from the first two chapters here and really the whole crux of the New Testament, that we should know the Savior. Chapter three begins with this know also. This know also. He says this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And he goes on and on and on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, in the army. So we are to know the Savior and know the situation. But in the army, we have this thing called SILs. Any soldiers in here know that SIL? S-L-L-S. Stop, look, listen and smell. It used to used to at least it used to be that way. It means you, you crossed into did it anymore Amelia? They still have that? I just remember it a decade or more. Ago. A decade, so not anything modern, no. <laughs> so it's a long time ago. It's been more than a decade since I got out of the military. So anyway, so you kind of cross over into the into the enemy territory. You go in there a little bit. You take a knee. You take your helmet off, which is the why I remember it really, because I get to take my helmet off, and I don't like wearing those things. And then your hair is all messed up. What little hair you got? Anyway, so you take it off and you stop. You stop. You look around, you listen, you smell, and you're taking in the environment. You're really trying to understand what the environment is that you are in. It was a process to gain situational awareness, to gain more knowledge of the environment, the environment that you were in. And this is exactly what God is telling us to do here. If you are a believer this morning, if you are a child of God, you are in a world that is at enmity against God, right? We are not in our environment. We are out of this world. What did Jesus say to uh, uh, Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, I would fight, but my kingdom's of a greater. So our kingdom is with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a, a spiritual kingdom, it transcends the phys- anything physical down here. We are in a world. We are in enemy territory, and we must know the situation. Paul states that these last days will be defined as perilous times. And he then really paints a picture, a very dark picture, of what some men in those perilous times will look like. Now, I know he uses the word men here, but it refers to just anybody. And we'll get down to some uh, some women characteristics here, and we'll talk about some of those things here. But just bear with me as we kind of go through this. I want you to look at these 20 20 different characteristics of some of the folks in the last days, and many of them are self-explanatory. But we're going to go through. We won't spend a whole lot of time on there, but we're going to read each one of them. Number one, he says that they were lovers of their own selves. I mean, I think we can just call that selfish. And then it says they were covetous. I think we call that greedy today. They were boasters. We could probably say they were arrogant, boasting in themselves other than, than things that should be boasted for. They were proud, pretty self-explanatory, blasphemers. The sixth thing, it says that they were disobedient to parents. Unthankful they were. They were unholy. The ninth thing, it says that they were without natural affection. Now, this this means they were implacable. It, it goes anything from a lack of empathy for other people's problems, and even to being unsocial because we don't have the desire to know other folks without natural affection. Then number ten, the tenth thing is truce breakers. Truce breakers. You make a truce with them and then they break the truce. But this also means they are irreconcilable. And if you start paying attention here and you start thinking about what our world is going through right now, you'll probably start seeing some similarities. Truce breakers. In other words, you cannot make a truce with them. You cannot come to a compromise. You cannot come to an accord to stop violence or whatever it may be. They cannot keep a truce. And then, number 11, false accusers. This is diabolos in the Greek, the same word used for Satan as an accuser of the brethren. The 12th thing is incontinent. That means they are void of self control. No self control. They say what they think all the time, they do what they want to do, no self control. And then, number 13, they're fierce. Savage, not tameable, And then 14, the 14th thing, the despisers of those that are good. That means they are hostile to virtue, hostile to anything godly, hostile to God's church, hostile to anybody that tries to take the higher ground. We see it in little areas, Bible thumper, those comments like that. Oh, he's he's one of those church goers. We see a little bit like that. Despisers of those that are good. The 15th thing is traitors. They, the betrayal among them is the norm and not the other way around. They are heady. That means they are rash and they are foolishly reckless with their lives. And this is not a, a verse against adventure. I think God wants adventure. If you want to jump out of an airplane and, and all the things are in place and you want to just have that adrenaline jumping out, I think you're crazy. But go for it. That's not what he's talking about here. Not jumping out with out a parachute or I don't know. That might be a little reckless. That That's, the, that's just Another word for that, but probably not reckless. But anyway, so number the 17th thing is high minded. So not only are they full of pride, but this verse means that that pride blinds them. That pride blinds them. They cannot see beyond the pride. And then the 18th thing is they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Again, this is not against pleasure. God creates emotion and God creates all these things. We have emotion because God has emotion. But when we love those feelings more than we love God, there's a problem. And then the they they are a devout hedonist, if you will. They are driven by pleasure. It feels good to do it. And then the 19th thing we see in verse 7. The Bible says that they are ever learning and unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 19. We'll come back to the, uh, the 20th here in a moment. This last one here, ever learning and unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they are spiritually handicapped. And that these ungodly attributes they have, they prohibit them from learning anything of spiritual value. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. Look at these things and and hopefully, if you're like me, you look at these and you're like, well, those people, those people, those people. But don't always look at it that way. Apply these things to us. Am I, am I ever a lover of self more than I am a lover of God? A lover of, of pleasure more than a lover of God? Do I ever lack natural affection? I think we can probably answer yes to all of these in some measure. Don't let it be. Don't let it define us. So these these individuals here that are ever coming are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Peter called them willfully ignorant. We talked about that a couple days ago, Brother Shannon. Uh, and Paul began his epistle to the Romans, writing of those who God, whom God gave over to a reprobate mind. I mean, he's working with them over and over. This is God working with man, and he gets to a point because he knows that they'll never come around. All right. Go with what you do. Know. Go with what you want to be. I give you over to a reprobate mind. But I want to point out that in the text this morning, verse 7, This inability to learn the truth is most likely connected to verse 6. And it is a description of the foolish or silly women laden with sins led away with diverse lusts. Now, I want to make something very clear here this morning. And it's important for us to understand that this verse doesn't mean that men cannot be led away. I think history would certainly prove otherwise. And Paul is not so much warning us of the exploitable women here, although that is applicable But he is warning us of the sort of men who lead those women away. For example, I want to point out that this was written in the first century. And women in the first century, the Gentile women in the first century Roman Empire, they were not afforded, unfortunately, the same social status as the men. It was very male-driven during the Roman Empire. They they certainly did not uh, enjoy the status of women today in in Christianized Christianized countries. And for this reason, some of the Gentiles... Some of the Gentile women were easily led astray through empty promises. The men would come along or even the woman would come along and say, look at this, look at this avenue, look at this avenue. Reject all the things that tradition tells you and follow this. And Paul is saying that they were easily led astray through empty promises, appealing to their diverse desires by a certain sort of men. A certain sort of men. In other words, for those individuals, men or women, by the way, today, who are always looking. Do you know, and maybe we've been that person, we're always looking for a better version of the truth. That's kind of what these, these silly women, if you, will, if you will, in this context here, and today it applies to all of us, those folks who are always looking for a better version of the truth, but they won't see the truth when, when they, they won't recognize the truth when they see it. And I think if you were to take this passage here and kind of, modernize it and look at it practically, we see it all over the Christian world today. Individuals who jump from one church to the next for whatever reason. Individuals who jump from one religion to the next for, for whatever reason. They go from Pentecostal to Catholicism, from Baptist to Methodist, Mormonism to Latter-day Saints, on and on and on and on. I have friends of mine that have been five, six different types of churches their whole life. They're ever looking for the truth. But the truth is in Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ. They are ever learning and never able to come to the truth. And while these individuals may think they're searching for God, they may think they're living for God. In reality, they are the victims of perilous times, the Bible says. They are being led away by a sort of men that Paul is talking about here. That Paul is warning Timothy, don't be led away. And watch out. And before we move on to our next imperative this morning, I would like to draw your attention to our twentieth attribute, look at verse five. Verse five says they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. From such turn away, friends. These sort of men are religious. See, that's the difference in the all of the majority of. A lot of the end times, we go through the, the 2,000 years of the church age, the age of grace and all those things. And we look at all these texts of all this, this wickedness that's, that's coming on and on. The Bible talks about how they will wax worse and worse. But the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more they're going to look like this. They're going to be very close to what we have here this morning. They will have a form of godliness, but they will deny God. This is the religious crowd. And quite frankly, this pseudo godliness, if you will, I believe it's the most dangerous trait of all wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, since the very beginning of Christianity, many actions have been done and many doctrines have been presented in the name of Christ, but they're not. Be very leery of any doctrine that's born outside of the first century, outside of the New Testament. In Titus 1.16, Paul wrote that these false teachers, get this now, they will profess that they know God, but in works they will deny Him. And in the text, back in 2 Timothy here, the Bible even gives us a by-name example of the sort of men Paul is talking about. Look at verse 8. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist truth, men of corrupt minds, Reprobate concerning the faith. Jewish history tells us that Janus and Jambres were among the sorcerers and the magicians that were on Pharaoh's side when Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh. You remember the story, uh, uh, the scene there, Aaron threw his rod on the ground of being obedient to God, and it turned into what did it turn into? Turn turned into a serpent, right? And then the magicians, these Janus and Jambres, they threw threw their rod down. They got it to turn into into a snake or a serpent. What happened then? Aaron's rod ate their rods. So, But on and on and on, Janus and Jambres did their very best to copy the hand of God. They did what they could to imitate God with magic. What God himself did by the hand of Moses and Aaron, but they eventually ran out of magic. <laughs> they eventually ran into a brick wall. They they come to a place where they can no more, no longer mimic the power of God and their folly was made manifest. I mean, y'all know this story. Exodus records very clearly the ten plagues called upon Egypt. And you look at some of those plagues, they were allowed to do the serpent, they could, they could turn the water into blood, and on and on and on. I think it was the lice where they couldn't replicate the lice. And then eventually God delivers His people. Pharaoh releases God's people, a clear example of what is yet to come for us Paul is telling us that those sorcerers who are over there mimicking God with their magic and their power and all that are just like the teachers of our day today. But their folly is going to be manifested. In verse 9, he states in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that they, the false teachers, shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was, theirs being the magicians. And just like in Exodus 8:19, if you were to turn there, you don't have to for the sake of time. The magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We cannot go against it. There's nothing we can do. It's the finger of God. And just like they recognize that they cannot mimic God anymore, so will the false teachers of our day. Because every man will eventually bow the knee. But until they're stopped, Paul says, Paul wanted Timothy and God greatly desires for us to know, for us to know the situation that we are in. Why? So we can know who the enemy is. So in these first nine verses of chapter three, the Bible gives us really a litmus test and an examination so we can stay purged from the vessels of dishonor that he introduced in the previous chapter. Remember we talked about that last week. He talked about the vessels of dishonor and the vessels of honor. And now chapter 3 describes some things about those vessels of dishonor. But as always, God gives direction. Paul warns Timothy of who not to follow. And then he points him in the direction of who he should follow. So after listing the many wicked characteristics of some of these men, he contrasts their qualities... With his own. Look at verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. You know all them. Let me warn you about those, Timothy. But you know me. And in our application of the truth of the scripture this morning, we are to know the Savior. We are to know the situation and we are to know our spiritual leaders. Now, this is a difficult point for me. But we are to know our spiritual leaders. Paul again here contrasts himself. I would assume it's probably a difficult thing for Paul himself to write. But he contrasts himself with those who have a form of ungodliness, who have a form of godliness. And he is essentially saying to Timothy, beware of their pseudo godliness and follow true godliness. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, "Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them." Now, that whom there is believed to be plural and Paul is probably referencing himself, but also his mother and his grandmother that of Timothy. And to the struggling believers in Corinth, Paul Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, "Be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ." Now, that's where it's difficult. I mean, all of us, men and women, we want to tell others, "Be you followers of me, as I am of Christ." And that's, I'm the only one that's, that's fearful. That means you're telling somebody to follow me, do what I do, and then if I don't do what God wants me to do, they're going to follow that. I'm guilty, of that person following me. But Paul says to Timothy, "Unlike all those false teachers, you know me. You know my doctrine." You know my manner of life. You know my purpose. You know my faith. You know my long suffering. You know my charity. You know my patience. You even know the persecutions that I endured at Antioch and other places. Again, Paul is telling me, you know me. You know exactly what I stand for, who I stand for. Paul is saying my statement of faith is not hidden from you. You know what I believe. And you know that it lines up with the scriptures. And I think of our application today of this text here of Timothy, of Paul charging Timothy to follow him, I think our application in this text is at least twofold. You see there is a clear indication that Timothy had to remain teachable. Good followers make good leaders. Good followers make good leaders. I mean think about it, even in our Lord's example, Jesus made it abundantly clear, who was He submissive to? Was He submissive to His own self? No, to the Father, to the Father. Yet He was the greatest leader ever and he followed even when he was in the garden even when it was tough even when it was the most difficult thing he would face in his human flesh he said not my will but thine he was the greatest leader that we could ever know and he was a follower as soldiers of the lord we are to remain teachable Followers of Jesus Christ and followers of those men who God put in in charge of us. And our second application is that is this: that while we are to follow them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, we are to do that. Paul says it in chapter two. uh, He kind of elaborates here on chapter three. But here we are as Christians sitting in the pews, if you will, all around the world, and even here specifically. But without being judgmental, we are to require a high standard of godliness from our spiritual leaders. It's in the Bible. We are to require a high standard of godliness and leadership from our spiritual leaders like Timothy required of Paul. It's not enough for me to just come up here and preach every Sunday and not live a life. I owe it to God and I owe it to you. You should require that of me. We can even say that Timothy required much of Paul Because Paul required Timothy to do so. Paul called him out. Timothy, you need to keep me in line. You need to keep me accountable. And I think that pattern is all throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament church. First Timothy chapter three, Titus one, Hebrews 13 and many other places place significant qualifications, high standards of holiness and responsibilities on spiritual leaders, all of which we fall short. In other words, I say that to say this. We must be very careful, very careful about who we let influence us. We must know their doctrine. We must know their manner of life. Like Timothy required of Paul, because Paul required of Timothy, we must know everything about them as much as possible. And again, as the pastor of a local New Testament church, I, I take this charge very seriously it's near and dear to my heart. I make it a point to not only live a right life before my Savior, but also not to hide what I believe. You can go on any of our websites. You can tell you can ask me. I will tell you anything. I will. I do my best to be an open book. I want to tell you what this church believes and to preach what the Lord through the word of God expects of us. I believe that as much as possible, you should fully know my doctrine. And my manner of life, my purpose, my faith and so forth. And for the most part, I will tell you that my life is open. I'm not a completely open book. No person really is. I I have to be honest there. But there's no hidden agendas. We want to see the Lord high and lifted up. Not just on Sundays, but on Mondays, on Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. You can always guarantee that my goal is to see the Lord high and lifted up. Second to that, we want to always press forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe each and every one of us should live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible teaches this, that we should be a people separated unto God, separated from the world. We should be a holy people. I think our world greatly needs authentic believing Christians. I think we should be those Christians. I think you should fully know where I stand in the faith. I think you should know that I practice what I preach. I believe we are all accountable to each other and I believe I'm accountable to you. I am accountable to you as much as Paul was accountable to Timothy and that they were both accountable to the Lord, according to the word of God. Unfortunately, there are many churches today that are different. We are not the end all be all by any means, but there are many counterfeits. And most of all, you'll most of y'all will rotate out and go to a different church, know what they believe. Know that pastor. Know where he stands. There are many counterfeits. Know your spiritual leader. Know him. And I also recognize that now more than ever, we can choose to get our influence from thousands of different sources, not just from the pulpit, not just from this pulpit or whatever church you're a member of. We get it through books, through radio, through YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and I think I'd be surprised the more I looked where people's theology come from. But some have even forsaken the assembling of ourselves together for those outlets. And I'm certainly not against getting the word out using those means. We use those means. But if Jesus Christ built the church, if this is God's plan, and God led you to a certain local church, then that certain local church, whether it's here or wherever in the world, they should be your major influence in spiritual things. And in all those other sources, we should do our best to know the doctrine and faith and manner of life of those we allow to influence us, whether it's books, whether it's TikTok, or whether it's, y'all don't know, I knew that, did you? But whether, whatever it may be, we must guard ourselves against who those influences are. I have a daughter <laughs> and a son. Actually, probably all of them use TikTok. (laughs) I hope it's not a bad thing because I have no idea what it is. (laughs) As we can see in the remainder of this chapter, God clearly points out what the measuring stick is. Like we're supposed to hold these spiritual leaders accountable. But what are we holding them accountable to? Of course, to God, right? But that's kind of abstract, is it not? We don't have... To be abstract. We don't have to be abstract. We have it in black and white. The guideline we are to put in place to, to ensure that those who follow Jesus Christ, that those we say we follow, to make sure they, to make sure I am following Jesus Christ, is nothing short than the Word of God. Look at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3. The Bible says, All Scripture... Is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's, I think that's going to be the title of next, next week's message, next, Thoroughly Furnished. Because we're going to look a little bit more at these last few verses next week. But for now, you just, I want to say this. We can see that Paul encourages Timothy to follow him as he follows the Lord. I think that's abundantly clear. Verse 15 states that it is the scriptures, not just Paul, not just Paul as a role model or spiritual leader, but it is the scriptures that are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. What's our takeaway? Our doctrine, our manner of life, our purpose and faith and all the rest of those things must be completely rooted in scripture. And the spiritual leaders who have the greatest influence on us should have the Word of God as their greatest influence. That makes sense? So the greatest influence on us really should be the Holy Spirit. He teaches us in accordance with the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit, mind you, never contradicts the Word of God. And He always points to Jesus Christ. Always. That's the best litmus test you can ever find for the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life or in any church. It always points to Jesus Christ. If it points anywhere else, be very leery. That, the Bible says, is our greatest teacher, the Holy Spirit. But in addition to that, every Christian should be in church. In the army, it used to, another saying, every soldier should have a first sergeant. And I think every Christian should have a pastor. Every Christian should be a part of a local New Testament church. And the Word of God should be the greatest influence of not just those in the pulpit, or those in the pews, but also of the man in the pulpit. The word of God is our measuring stick. And as we come to a close this morning, I know that this passage is a little different, this message, a little more teaching than preaching. I understand that. But my challenge to you is to make it a point to know your spiritual leaders, to get to know them. And and if you take that seriously and practically, as you get a little closer to me, be, be graceful. I'm not perfect. You will see very quickly that I'm not perfect. But know your spiritual leaders. Know the situation that you're in. And most importantly, know the Savior. Know the Savior. Let us pray.